You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by no one. That's right, we're off for Independence Day here in America, and, you know, certain of our co-hosts are... On the other side of the pond, I assume mourning the tragic loss of the American colonies, but that's neither here nor there. But we have two interviews in our best of segment here. First, we have bass baritone Kyle Kettleson, where they talk about um, acid reflux, as I recall, followed by, that's right, the famous Jake Heggie interview, the one that actually exists. <laughs> it's well worth your time. Enjoy your holiday. Stay safe out there. Uh, and we'll be back next week with more new content. But until then, enjoy bass baritone Kyle Kettleson. Sorry, but I'm eating chips because I had one of those days where it's just been nonstop. And the only thing I can put in my mouth is something... Crunchy and loud, perfect for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it really let it wash over yeah. you. Um, so over the Thanksgiving weekend, I was able to get in touch with Kyle Kettleson, and he was super generous with his time. We actually have such a long interview, I had to edit some of it out. Um, one of the things that got edited was one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to him, uh, which is what's going on in Austria. So at the top of the show, you heard a little bit of, of that conversation. But in short, uh, they are a month into rehearsing the brand new Berikowski production of Don Giovanni at Wiener Staatsoper. And the intendant, Bogdan Rostich, seems to be uh, in negotiations with Alexander Schallenberg, the chancellor of Austria, so that uh, the lockdown will end <laughs> in time for um, the run of Don Giovanni. Now that is called to... clout. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they're going to miss um, the first three performances that are scheduled, but the first scheduled performance was going to be the live stream, which is actually going to happen just without an audience. Mm. So that happens, I think, on December fifth, and will be streamed on the Wiener Staatsoper streaming platform. So we can see it. And uh, in this production, Kyle Kettleson, who is a renowned Leporello, has been singing Leporello like his whole life, is going Does to Does he have singing. that on his LinkedIn profile? Renowned Leporello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he will be singing the role of Don Giovanni. But I wanted to talk to him about Leporello, and we begin the conversation, I think, talking about Leporello, where we are going to edit into it. Uh, I remember his Leporello from 2014, which he did here in Chicago in the Robert Falls production at Lyric Opera, which starred Ana Maria Martinez and Marina Rebecca and Marius Kvitschen. Man, was he so good in that show. And it was one of those performances where I felt like, oh, I am seeing a complete artist. Like this guy is so embodied in the role. He really has the physical thing timed out so well where it just feels so natural. Like he's responding to what's happening on stage. You know, sometimes you go see a show and somebody could drop like one of their 
costume parts and it's on the ground and like nobody touches it because it's like not in their blocking to like touch it like that would never happen with kyle oh, kettleson yes. kyle kettleson's type person like sees everything that's happening on stage and like just knows how to do everything in character and to time everything he just looks so fantastic and he sounds like a million bucks uh so i wanted to talk to him about singing leporello but we ended up surprisingly talking about Building a family as an opera singer, which is one of our favorite topics. And also a surprise topic I wasn't expecting, how to deal with acid reflux. <laughs> we actually <laughs> talked about it for like 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, so we're going to get into this interview right now. Warning, it was early for me um, when we recorded this. So I'm very puffy. So this is how I normally look in real life. But in the morning, I'm just... <laughs> it's why it's a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, before we go into this, we're going to... Oh, I have to tell you that he was on Conan O'Brien's podcast recently. And we're going to hear a little bit of that at the end of the show. But we're going to begin with a little sample of Kyle singing with St. Louis Symphony in 2009 from Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. Uh, this is uh, Une Puisse Gentille. Sung Leporello, like it's literally like 170 performances, 180 performances of Leporello. I've done maybe 30 productions, 35 productions. I can't, I've lost track, um, but it's right around there. And, you know, for years I didn't want to approach Giovanni. Um, I had too much uh, respect for the role to think that I could do it any anywhere nearly as well as I it should be done. Um, I first sang Giovanni at grad school in English, at Indiana University in English in 1997, I think. And it was very difficult. Um, and then I didn't touch it for another nine years. And that's that was in Minnesota Opera in 2006. And it was off the heels, on the heels of uh, the greatest vocal crisis of my career, which was mm. caused by a reflux. It was before I had as reflux under control and my voice basically disappeared. I lost my resonance, I lost my range. And then I was asked to do, not asked, but I was already contracted to do John Giovanni just a few months after I had this huge, huge event in my vocal life, so to speak. And so I sang that thing horribly. I didn't, I couldn't cover anything. I couldn't, I couldn't soften any of the high notes. 
um, I had to ask the conductor to take uh, one of the arias down a half step so I could sing it. It was very, very difficult. And then, um, you know, I've just loved the character of Leporello so much. You have the yeah. tool by Da Ponte and Mozart to steal the show every night if you can do it. And so I had quite a good success with that role. And, you know, it's funny because um, so 06 was the last time I had, I've done it. So we're talking 15, almost 16 years because it was January of 06. So almost 16 years. Um, and a couple of things happened during that time. One, I did a Leporello in Tokyo and it was in concert version. And I remember thinking after the show, and this is probably four years ago, wow, I, I, I sang, I sang that, I felt great about that vocally. Why, what was different about tonight? And then I of course realized, well, I'm not rolling around on the floor and doing somersaults and being beaten <laughs> in the sextet and running around, you know, I could actually just stand and deliver. And then it kind of flipped the switch in my head. Maybe Giovanni might be something that I could do. And, and I've always, I've fielded offers from companies asking me to do Giovanni. And my agent has always brought it up to me. And I just kind of say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Because um, I've, you know, I've worked with, uh, you know, Terville and Keenly Side and Finley and, you know, all these guys as the Giovanni. Um, and I've seen what they've done. And I've, and I've often thought I can't do that well enough to my, for my, um, satisfaction but so there, a couple things happened that tokyo gig was like the a, the a switch had been flipped and also you know the my voice type which is true bass baritone a bass with high notes the my voice has changed i'm 50 now and so um you suddenly things are a whole lot easier to sing right now than they were and I'm, it's kind of opened my eyes to doing much heavier repertoire and then over over COVID, there were a couple of things that were that I did. Um, the, my first Kaspar and Freischütz in Munich, which is heavy. And then I had people coming out of the woodwork saying, "What Wagnerian do you do? What you know? What do you?" I said, "Nothing, nothing. I don't do." So now I'm kind of opening my eyes to that. Maybe a Dutchman, or maybe a Rheingold. Um, um, Mima. No, what's his name? The one-eyed man. Votan. There you go. That'd be oh. the only vote comment I could probably do oh, right okay. now. Okay, interesting. Um, wait, you you touched on so many things right now, and I yeah, right. Wind it back. Um, it's the it's the lagavulin that, yeah. that caused it. It's because I I always try to make this show um, about things that people can really relate to and see themselves in somebody who's had a successful career as you. You had reflux. Um, what were the symptoms? What was it like to not know? And what was the, um, you know, the therapy? So, you know, I think back to well before I, I had the blowout, I had the, the first time I remember it being, a, it, it affecting my singing and I didn't know it was reflux was when I was singing a high note and it would, so on a high note, instead of going, ah, it would, go, ah, it would just break up a little bit. And I thought, what is, why is it doing that? That was reflux. Um, so the chords were not meeting all the way because there were some, they weren't clean. They weren't all the probably way. In, inflamed, them, probably irritated, like inflamed. That. You know, when you have um, uh, one of the strongest acids known to man, wash over your chords and your pharynx and your larynx. Mm -hmm. Ain't that great for mm -hmm. singing? Whereas most people, you know, non-singers, 
doesn't bother them a bit if they have a little yeah. bit of rap for their voices as character, right? Yeah. But for us, you know, elite users of this thing, these two flaps of skin down here, we notice every little bit. And so that was like the canary in the coal mine for me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I took some some proton pump inhibitors, you know, your Nexium, Prilus, like that sort of thing in a, in a, a lesser um, dose at first. And then... I remember from, from basketball, because I played basketball, I had to stop 10 years ago, but I, I played for 21 years, just, you know, passionately um, at school, then at another school, and then into, like, whenever, wherever I would travel, I would find a basketball court there, and that was my, that was my um, exercise, and I tore ACL over here on my right side, and then I tore the ACL on my left side, and then I tore the ACL on my right side, well, the second ACL surgery I had, I gave myself enough time or as much time after the surgery as I did my first ACL surgery to start singing again. And I started singing. And basically this is 2005, December of 2005 is when I had the second ACL. And I started singing because I had a gig coming up and I wanted to start preparing again. I was up and walking and, and um, I, my voice, it hit a ceiling. I would, uh, and it would stop. Uh, and, it, and it was like, I didn't, I couldn't go through my passaggio and I couldn't go into the, um, my head voice. I couldn't cover anything. And it felt exactly like it felt, or it reminded me of very much of when I was 19 and had just started studying singing and didn't know how to do that stuff. Yeah. The difference was I know how to do it, but suddenly my voice, my body wasn't letting me, the, the ability was not there. And so uh, you know, I just start wondering what's going on. And so I ended up seeing a, uh, a great um, speech therapist named Brian Petty at University of Wisconsin Hospitals uh, in Madison, who's great, great, great. And he, I then saw Dr. Ford, who was a legend at University of Wisconsin. And so between the two of them, we kind of, you know, I, I did daily um, for 18 months, I did daily exercises and it took that long to get my voice back to feeling like it was anything. And I had, I had role debuts during that time. I mean, and house debuts. I did Figaro at Covent Garden during that time. I did Escamillo in, in, um, in uh, San Francisco at that time. And I didn't do them justice at all. You know, I didn't cancel anything for better or worse during that period. So anyway, you know, it, it's a, it's a period of life. And the more singers I speak to, the more have that experience. Not exactly that experience, but they have an experience where they came to a uh, a crisis in their vocal life, and they thought, "What else can I do? What is there? Can I, you know, if I, if I can't be a singer, because you know, singers are crazy. No matter, I mean, I consider myself a pretty sane singer, but there's still that little crazy corner of my brain that talks to me. You know, like you'll never sing again. You'll never, you know, you're screwed. Even even if you want to have a cold, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little voice that says you're never going to sing again. And you, and you try and tamp it down and say, shut up. That's nuts. And most of the time it's wrong. Well, this, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty um, desperate. And so uh, it was a, it was a down time for me, you know, mentally. And I'm not a depressive type at all, but I was, oof, that was tough, but it, it just, I clawed back out of it and got with a new, new teacher. And was there my, something you had to change with your diet or when you well, ate or, like when you slept or this type of stuff, you know? You well, there's all that. Anymore, so, like... Well, um, 
reflux kind of runs in my family. My dad, you know, as long as I can remember, he always was popping Tums. This is before there were drugs for it. Yeah. Popping Tums and acids, you know. My sisters each have it. Um, one of my sisters, it she was she was um, inhaling it for years, and she she was so raspy and she 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 had a horrible raspy voice because and she ended up having her nasal passages bored, you know, mistakenly because uh, because of the symptoms she was having before they finally um, realized and it was diagnosed correctly as reflux. And my other sister, my older sister has it as well. So it run, it's, you know, the force is strong with this family. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I have to take the pills. I've continued to take the pills next to him. I take the maximum dosage every single day. And also that's not enough. I can't just eat what I want when I want. I don't eat late. Um, after show, almost never. And if I ever do, it's a very rare uh, treat, you know, like have a little snack at a party or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, after an opera. But um, I, I can't. Uh, you have I to can't avoid eat. things like pasta, like white white starches, and you so, know. Well, so the list, you know, the first, it's it's shock to the system yeah. for anyone who enjoys life. Yeah. You know, the, the list is okay. So likes first, pleasure. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you don't, you're good. You're good. If you don't like to have fun, you're good. So, okay. Alcohol. Okay. Tomato products, you know, what red wine, chocolate, um, any spicy food, you know, and these are like my list of the best things in life. So, but okay. So thankfully in the end, you know, there's more stuff in between, but in the end it's about moderation, just like a lot of other things in life. It's about moderation. I don't eat late. I cut off at a certain time. And, um, you know, some people say, wow, isn't that difficult? Isn't that difficult? I, in my line is I either eat what I want when I want, or I have a singing career. And so that choice is easy for me. Okay, good. I like to hear that answer. It means you're dedicated. Well, you know, well, there there was that (laughs) moment. you got to feed a family. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was that moment in those six where I was faced with what else could I do? And the, you know, there were crickets. That's all I heard. You know, what else can I do? I'm so glad. No, I really am glad you said that because I don't know. There are a lot of people out there who get so easily discouraged and they give up on their careers. And like, you know what? When people give up, great. Uh, you know, if you couldn't, uh, this I'm going to sound like such a jerk, but you know, if that was your obstacle to pursuing this, then I'm glad you figured it out at this age or at this point in your life and you did something else, you know? But there are some people like you and me who like, well, you obviously are having a great thing here, but like I've been pushing so hard my whole life to have something so I could be part of this community. And I'm fine. I'm like 46 years old now. And I finally have like a job that really reflects my passion, you know, but uh, nice. it's tough. And there's so many ways to get discouraged and COVID happens and then nobody has yeah. a job. <laughs> I have one more question for you, but um, I also don't want to miss the opportunity if you I got time. We can keep going. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, the show is only an hour, so. <laughs> okay. No, um, you you brought up your own, fat. You brought up your own family, and I know that you live in Wisconsin. Is that where mm-hmm. your home base is? Yep, outside of Madison. Yeah, and um, this is always a topic that's interesting to us um, when somebody that has a career like yours, where you're, well, you're in Vienna right now, and it's Thanksgiving in the U.S. What was it like to begin to start a family? Uh, what type of support did you have to make it possible? And which companies can you shout out as being 
particularly helpful in accommodating, oh, I've got to bring my kid to rehearsal today, or can you, you know, play with him, get some stage people to like, you know, play, play a game or something like that, do homework with them or something, you know? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I'm married well. I'm married up, as I say. You know, when my wife and I have known each other from since 1991. We've been dating since 1994, and we got married in 99. She knew what I would do, be, be doing before I did. And that's no, no, no lie, no exaggeration at all. Um, I am always very quick to praise her because, you know, she has enriched my life and then lives of my kids. And um, she's the glue that binds us all. And, um, you know, my dedication to my wife and to my family is uh, a greater point of pride for me than my career in singing. You know, um, I'm... Um, so lucky, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky to have found her early on. And as I said, she, she knew what she was in for, because I think a lot of people have problems when their spouse discovers what being a singer means and they can't take it. Um, my wife and I each have the great ability to be happy alone. I'm happy by myself. I'm, I've always been happy by myself and she's the same way. And that's a huge part of it right there. Um, and it was always my, you know, I was, uh, before I knew what opera was, I knew I wanted to be a husband and a father. And so when I was faced with this career and thought, oh, I think I'm actually going to make a career like, uh, you know, and being hired for things before we had kids, I asked anyone who would listen and give me advice, um, on what it means to have kids, young kids, especially when I'm trying to start a career. And uh, my teacher at Indiana was Giorgio Totsi, who was quite a famous singer and he had kids and, and was married and had a best career you can imagine. Um, and he said, just that you are thinking of that tells me that it'll be okay. Just the, just the sole fact that you are concerned about that I think you'll be okay. And that was a big part of it. Uh, meaning I always put them first. I always let them know that they were the most important thing in my life and in our lives and my, my wife's life and mine. Um, my wife always took the steps to close the gap. However, it could be done like, Oh man, I just got this offer to do this and this, but it means I'm going to be away six of eight months, you know? And she said, well, we'll come that will make it work. We'll come. So they'd come to Barcelona. They'll come to Rome, you know, or, or um, I've never, I've never, and it's funny, you know, I embrace any opportunity to give advice to young singers. I have two or three here who have like bent my ear and say, Hey, I want to, can we talk about this? And I'm, I love it. I love it. I love it. Cause anything that I can do to help, you know, with, with their um, anxieties about doing this thing that I've done, um, I'm happy to do. And so uh, one thing I say is I've never, ever um, regretted saying no to a role in order to be home. I've never regret, I've turned down some very big things, but I know I would have been miserable because that's, you know, if I'm going to be away for four months at a time without seeing my family, I can't, that's a deal breaker. Sorry. I just can't do it. And some people, some companies over the years have just don't understand that. They say, well, why would you want that? And I think, well, that's, I don't need to work with you. You know, if that's, if that's your attitude, I don't, you know, if you can't, let's make it work in some other way. 
And I've never regretted that. I've never regretted spending money to go home to see my family, even for a few days. You asked about a, a, a company. I mean, most companies are just fine with, with families visiting. I would, I, I mean, I would hesitate saying all because I suppose there are a few who are not, but really it's up to the director, the conductor in the rehearsal atmosphere. And it's up to them to say, yeah, bring them on in. Come on in. That, you know, if it were me and we were conducting an, uh, a rehearsal and I hear a baby cry, it's beautiful. But I imagine some people might, might see it as a, a disruption, but I haven't really run into that. But I've always asked and it's always been okay. Um, I was at Covent Garden singing a role, a big role. Um, and uh, my wife was due to have our son. This is 2005. And it was it came to pass that it was going to be a C-section. So it was scheduled. So we knew a date. And as soon as we knew the date, I asked them and they're like, yep, go. So I flew from London to home two days. Was it the birth of my son? Spent time with my three or two and a half year old daughter, not enough time with anybody. And then flew back. And then we were in dress week, you know, but you just make it work. It's easier these days. Um, my kids are 16 and 18 and their my relationship with them is stellar. It could not be better. A big part of this whole thing is that right there. I mean, yeah. and this right here, it's, yeah. it's really amazing how much I can feel at home when I'm, you know, you, I immerse myself as though I'm on in watching a movie, you know, you immerse yourself and you just you yeah. get in there. And you, yeah. So there's your long yeah. answer. No, no, but and God bless the families who, um, you know, maybe were separated by a gig at the start of COVID and couldn't see each other because they were quarantined. And Oof. yeah, it must have been horrible. Um, all right. Well, we should end on a, on a fun note. Um, you, <laughs> like last month or two months ago, you were on Conan's podcast. <laughs> How did you get picked for that? It was a simple, um, so I, I started listening to Conan's uh, podcast in the, uh, the, you know, the 2020, the big lockdown year. And I don't think he started very, very long before that, if at all. And I've always been a fan when he took over for Letterman in like 94. Um, you know, I, I've just been a fan and I see his, I'm a Simpsons fan. So I, I see things and I, I can see his, his fingerprints on that. Um, SNL, you catch a glimpse of him on old Farley, uh, Phil Hartman, uh, SNLs. So I've always been a fan. Um, started this news podcast in the lockdown, the great lockdown of 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, he, the podcast is called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. friend and yeah. He basically takes uh, celebrities, not me, celebrities, and um, um, interviews them just has long form interviews whereas talk shows are only four yeah. five six seven minutes yeah. he gets to it's his own deal so he 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 gets to talk to them for 40 minutes anyway so inside of that podcast spawn he spawned uh, a mini podcast called conan o'brien needs a fan and so fans were encouraged and it's still a thing it's still going on to go to the website and fill out a form. And, and um, so I thought, wouldn't that be fun? And then I didn't go, I didn't do anything past that. And then my wife, who's always looking ahead <laughs> and knows things that no other human knows said, you should do that. And I said, why? They're not going to talk to me. What, you know, what? And so, okay, I did it. And I remember filling it out. So that the, 
the form was, um, I think they asked you five questions and, or five questions you'd ask Conan. And I just tried to be irreverent, you know, and just kind of, uh, strange and odd and funny and refer, you know, referential to the show, you know, to his stuff in the past. Like one of the questions I asked him was, how do you, how do you sleep at night? That's it. And then another one was, um, are you at all concerned with, um, the carbon footprint that, that you were causing to maintain that quaff, you know, his, his hairdo. <laughs> and so I guess they, they liked it. So they contacted me and said, Hey, we'd be interested in having a, an interview. And I said, great. Okay. So I had an interview with Sean, one of his producers. And, um, he asked me those questions that I asked Conan. So he flipped them on me yeah. and you know, they, it's basically a screening process. They're seeing if, see if you can do, hang. Yeah, exactly. See if you're quick, see if you yeah. can actually, carry on a conversation yeah. not like you what you're do. doing here on upper box score not at all you know i'm almost asleep here on the couch. Are you still here oliver scotch. yeah oh come on that's life baby um so then well, i remember finishing that interview uh the, the first interview and i said to my wife i went upstairs said to my wife i'm gonna be on that show i know it it felt so good and then two days later they said hey we'd like to invite you on the show and so i'm like i did it it was a lot of nerdy fun and it was cool to, you know, talk to him and to his uh, two sidekicks. And they put um, a lot of reverb on your Toreador. They did. I saw that. And <laughs> they did the same thing to his song, yeah. too. Because, you know, I think there were some comments. They played a four minute video on Conan's uh, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And some people were like, what's he doing with his voice there? Oh, you know, he can't sing. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I didn't. Uh, what am I going to do? It's the same way I've never dr- had. I've never had six packs drawn on me in a show. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Sorry. They are what they are. Yeah. Uh, no, and it's, so it's funny that like reverb is a signal to the lay audience that now we are listening to music. You know, if there's no reverb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they did that. I didn't ask. I thought it was funny. I immediately noticed because it, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, and then they did the same to his uh, nonsense. Uh, <laughs> uh, reply it was a it was a lot of fun and he was genuinely um a treat and yeah. when before we were or after we were done recording he you know just complimented me and and said oh just such great you know we're not recording now so this you know it's not bullshit so uh and he did he i think it's on the recording on the on the end result where he he encouraged me he's like whenever you're singing let me know and i'll come i'm like yeah. great but i don't have anything in la i never sing in la yeah. Fantastic. And now um, I'm going to show the contrast between a real opera star (laughs) who knows what he's doing and a jackass. And it goes something like this. Yeah, the pitch is pretty good. Well, Kyle Kettleson, um, it's been so great to talk to you. Thanks for opening up about Reflux and about uh, your love of Conan O'Brien. Uh, that's a <laughs> private thing. Um, oh, yeah. it's, it's been great to have you on Opera Box Score. 
Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Anytime you want me, I'll be back. Thanks again to our uh, amazing guest, Kyle Kettleson, for his insights into both acid reflux and Conan O'Brien. Coming up now, we've got the famous re-recorded interview with Jake Heggie, this one that we did eventually save, and uh, we'll start off with a little introduction by Oliver Camacho. So earlier today, Matt and I were able to snag Jake Heggie for just a quick 30 minutes um, <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, his show, um, To Remain, is about to be produced by Chicago Fringe Opera. And since one of our regular panelists has a relationship with Chicago Fringe Opera, he had to recuse himself from today's episode. Hopefully, every week we'll have a guest that uh, is having a relationship with Chicago Fringe Opera. So we never have to see that lep- that leprechaun again. But um, we have this wonderful interview with Jake Heggie, who is here to talk about a difficult opera. It's based on survivors' stories from the Holocaust. And uh, he's going to tell us all about it. It's some heavy stuff, but uh, in the traditional Jake Heggie way, he has found a way to add light and hope uh, through the use of his, you know, popular idioms and tonality and uh, giving some giving the audience something to really, you know, enjoy musically. It's not all thorny angular music, as is not uh, Jake Heggie's brand. And uh, we'll start off the interview with him uh, testifying that he indeed did appear on Opera Box Score years ago, though he doesn't remember it. I would love if you could just confirm for our audience that uh, you did, in fact, give an interview to a radio show called Opera Box Score. I don't know what year it was, but when Chicago Opera Theater was doing Moby Dick, what, 2018? Uh, 19. That was 2019. Spring of 19. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it was 19? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember ever calling into WNUR in Chicago and talking to a couple of chumps that didn't know how to use uh, <laughs> their microphones and their tech? <laughs> you know what? I only I try to remember the good times. Okay. <laughs> so technically, this is your second interview uh, for Opera Box Score, but the first that will be heard by an audience. <laughs> We've referred to the other one as our lost episode many times. <laughs> so welcome back. It was the white whale episode. Exactly. <laughs> it was. We'll rebrand so, it. <laughs> so we just missed you uh, for the opportunity uh, to talk to you about uh, If I Were You uh, which was the opera you wrote for the Merola program, which the Bean and School of Music Opera Theater just mounted uh, exactly a month ago today. That was it. So, um, and now you're, I don't know if you're coming to Chicago or if you are uh, giving your counsel over the internet uh, to this company called Chicago Fringe Opera um, for your um, piece called To Remain. And uh, luckily Matt has seen it. So he he has a little bit more reference point. I've been listening to it all day long, and I understand that the commercial recording uh, out of darkness isn't exactly what to remain is. Can you first of all, can you tell us what the subject matter is, and then two, tell us how it relates to the recording out of darkness? Right. Um, it it had a long uh, gestation piece and quite public, actually. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you like to keep those things private, but. Um, uh, to remain started off 
as um, two separate one act operas that were commissioned by an amazing group out of Seattle called Music of Remembrance. And what this group does, it's about to celebrate its 25th season. And it was founded by a woman named Minna Miller, who's also the artistic director. And uh, Minna wanted to create a chamber group that would perform music that was lost to the, to the Holocaust. Um, composers that perished or were murdered um, and their music then forgotten. And she gradually over the years started to expand that vision. And when I came along, she asked me to uh, write a song cycle about the persecution of gays in the Holocaust. And I didn't actually know anything about this subject and did a lot of research and told Minna, look, I really, I wanna do it. I think it's more of a theater piece, however. And so that evolved into a piece called For a Look or a Touch with an actor and a baritone and a chamber ensemble. And- A baritone or a bear hunk? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we'll an aged, an aged bear hunk, you know. So <laughs> if it's like thinking back, maybe you you need like the Thomas Hampson version of bear hunk. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many baritones have done the role. Um, <laughs> all of them bear hunks, I will yeah, tell you. Yeah. Um, oh, but uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, and then it, it then a couple years later, we decided she brought another story to my attention. And uh, by the way, out of darkness, I mean. Um, for a look or a touch was with librettist Jean Shear, who also wrote the libretto for Moby Dick, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful life. And if I were you, and our upcoming—he's yeah. Hoffman style, yes, or your the Ponte, yeah, yes, he is. Um, I've been lucky; I've had two. I had Terence McNally, and now I have Jean Shear. Um, and then a, a couple years later, Minna came to us with a piece called uh, that became another Sunrise, that was about the life of a woman named Christina Zabolska, another Holocaust survivor story. And that was just a one woman, one act opera. But Christina, to survive in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, made up lyrics to popular tunes of the day um, that people could sing in the camps and give them hope and connection to something you know, optimistic in the midst of such horror. And so as a subsequent piece, we created a song cycle called Farewell Auschwitz that had her lyrics translated by Jean Shear and then I set them to some original tunes and then a couple of known tunes. And then we decided, well, we have these three pieces and um, we, we made a recording of them. And we thought, well, what are we gonna call this bunch of pieces, these two one act operas and this song cycle. And so we came up with the title Out of Darkness, right? So that is what the recording was. But then we thought people started to want to perform this and it just became, it was a little unwieldy. You have a one act opera and then a song cycle and then a one act opera. And so we thought we have to make a cohesive one evening, full evening work of this. And so we went to work and we rewrote the first piece, Another, Another Sunrise and wove in the songs that Christina wrote to survive in the camp and added some other characters. And so created a new first act and then kept for a look or a touch, basically the same for the second act. And then we called this version to remain, the number two, as in two people, Christina and Gad. And that's what the acts are called. And so it's this long genesis into this one act piece that I still have never seen <laughs> in its final version. It was done, uh, when we got to the final version, it was done in Atlanta at Atlanta Opera. And I couldn't be there 
unfortunately. The timing was bad. And so now it's going to be done by Chicago Fringe Opera and I'm unfortunately not able to be there again. Oh. So this is an opera of mine I have never seen. Anyway, that's a long trajectory to tell you how we got to this piece. And it, it, it's a combination of very challenging and dark because of the subject matter and the location, but also very hopeful and redemptive because I like pieces that give you something hopeful to hang on to at the end. So um, there are two ghost stories, two dark nights of the soul about embracing your past and the ghosts of your past. Because if you don't embrace them and learn to uh, live honestly with them, they will haunt you for the rest of mm -hmm. your life. And I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, how it was that you constructed that kind of sound world with, with a combination of your original compositions and some, some familiar tunes. Like what sort of musical influences were you trying to evoke in, yeah. in, in uh, recreating such a specific sound world? A specific time too, yeah. A specific time period, yeah. Well, that's actually a challenge that I love because I grew up in a household where my dad, my dad listened to big band music and great jazz singers. And my mom sort of listened to a combination of pop and country a little bit. And my sisters were into all the rock bands and I loved musicals, of course. And um, so all those influences are, are in my wheelhouse. And uh, so when it came time to do these songs that she was, um, she was writing and emulating and creating during the, the uh, 30s and 40s, I was able to emulate the Andrews sisters for one of the songs, a song called Miss Jutka. And um, I actually took a Chopin, um, uh, what is this? Nocturne, ballade, <laughs> etude. Okay. <laughs> a waltz, a knock, okay. uh, the C-sharp minor waltz. Gosh, my poor brain. Um, <laughs> and I emulated a Schubert song. And then I did another, I did an anthem and a real combination of things that would be influences that people at that time would have known about mm -hmm. and that would sound familiar to them. So really, I think all of them are pretty original uh, they have influences that make it sound like it's been around, but uh, except for the Chopin, um, which I which I took um, uh, directly from. It's public domain, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but even so in it was uh, fun and challenging, and and uh, to sort of figure it out because we don't know what the tunes were that she set. We just have her lyrics. Yeah. Um, but I also needed to make it fit into the sound world of the opera that I was creating. So. So this is the big challenge of opera. It's like, you don't want to just be pastiche. You want it to be of a piece so that there's a line, a harmonic, melodic, um, rhythmic line that takes you from beginning to end and yet surprises you, you know? Inevitable yet surprising. Um, it's really easy. I don't know why everyone can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but even in the uh, second act, the the God, God Gad, 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 yeah. I remember hearing a song that felt very big band dance number. I think it's called Golden Years. Is that Golden Years? Yeah. 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 So I'm assuming Chicago Fringe Opera, that's going to be like a big dance number and all the male chorus is going to come out, like Chippendale style. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, in a Holocaust drama, if the Chippendales dancers will come out. But, but uh, okay, I'll leave that to you. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I don't know what they're planning. I, and I'm, that's why I'm so upset. The timing doesn't work for me to go. I was hoping just to be able to fly out just for the evening to be able to hear it. But unfortunately I can't, but I'm so grateful them uh, for doing it. It's very brave. 
to do it, you know, because it, it actually is a very complicated demanding piece. And because the uh, orchestration is a chamber ensemble of six instruments, those are all very, very soloistic demanding instrumental parts. So you have to have crackerjack great players to do it, as well as the cast uh, to handle all the dramatic uh, ups and downs of the piece. Yeah, I feel like this work is very hard to market because, I mean, listen to how long it took for you even to explain like what it is. And, you know, the Holocaust is such a difficult topic in general. And of course, there's all these other topics within, you know, all these stories within the Holocaust. So how do you you know, address the gravity of it while not making people scared, like, oh, this is going to be a depressing evening. Oh, and like, it's, it's the story of survivors. And we all know what it is to survive something. And we all know, um, to a certain extent, um, what, what is necessary to survive. But what these survivors went through in the Holocaust, you know, you, you don't really, sometimes survivors are cast as heroes. And they don't really like that because they don't necessarily feel heroic. They were just surviving. And then sometimes you don't know what it is to survive until the gun is pointed at your head. And so the, to hear these people deciding and wrestling with the story they're going to tell of their life. Because um, a lot of times people who survive horrific events like this, they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They want to leave it in the past. And yet some people keep asking and they have to decide which version of what they went through, they're going to share and live with for the rest of their life. And that's what this piece is about. It's about two survivors deciding, are they going to embrace or bury the past and how they find a way to deal with those ghosts. I think everyone loves ghost stories. There's a bit of a sci-fi feel to a ghost story. And mm -hmm. we all sort of love the magic realism of, of a ghost story. And what would happen if the ghosts of your past visited you and said, please just tell us the truth, embrace us, love us. Cause ghosts, you know, they just wanna be loved and remembered. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily, you know we wanna forget, they wanna be remembered. Um, and so it's that struggle between the now and the past and the future. Um, but I find that fascinating. I love magic realism. I love stories of people who survive and how they did it. That's why I love, I love biographies and novels about survivors because they're so fascinating how people get through things. Um, and to imagine surviving something as horrific and heavy as that, and to find a redemptive way to tell that through music and you know, poetic libretto, uh, like uh, Gene Shear's beautiful words and a range of musical influences that is really exciting and uh, engaging. Uh, it's a wonderful challenge, but I find that it actually, audiences go away uplifted from these from the evening because like in the second half with the story of Gad Beck and Manfred Levine they go away thinking I just watched a great love story unfold you forget that it's a gay love story it's just a very human love story and uh, I think that is is uh, is tremendous and it can so these stories can bring perspective to us they can give us information about things we never knew about I'm a gay man. I did not know about the persecution of gays in the Holocaust. I did not know about people surviving in Auschwitz by writing lyrics to songs and the songs going viral in the camp and that giving everyone hope and opportunity for something connected and beautiful. Um, I think that it's, it's such, it, it's incredibly rich. 
And with this, with the stories being, you know, they're they're so fraught and they're so heavy and so complicated, and with it in with the perspective of that that light at the end of the tunnel that you're that you're talking about here, what is, is there any kind of uh, light or freshness that you hope the audience takes away that that they haven't necess- that they may not have necessarily considered before about the subject matter? Any, any, I'm sorry, any light of what? Or any, any kind of, what, what, what is, um, if, if you had an audience member who could just kind of say like, this was, this was what I took away from that uh-huh. in your, in your dreams of this piece, what, what is it that, that they're saying to you? Um, okay. In the first half, Christina winds up rejecting and deciding, no, that's not the version of the story I want to tell. I'm going to see another sunrise and I'm going to live another day and I'll make a decision later. So she's going to be haunted by these ghosts. Gad at the end of act two, literally embraces and remembers and holds on to that ghost from his past mm-hmm. and finds peace. It's the first time the actor playing the role of Gad actually sings. And I think it's it's a big message about embracing and, and, uh, and loving all the things that have happened to you, the good and the bad, so that you can live a fulfilled life and a complete life. Otherwise, you're sort of doomed to repeat behaviors and be trapped by the past. But if you embrace it, if you take it in, maybe music can come back into your life. Maybe something can open in your heart that was, that was closed off. And I think that's one of the big messages of the piece is that as horrible as things are in the past, some for for some people, I, I've been very lucky in my life. I've had some tragedy, but nothing like what these people went through. But when you can finally embrace and accept all of that as part of the journey, um, there can be a real liberation in your heart and an and openness that you, maybe you had never considered before. And I think that's a perspective people sometimes lose. Just to circle back to us. Uh, and the and the all stars of uh, opera box score. We've had Katira Stakan, uh, we've had Joachim Schomburger uh, as guests, uh, and we've had Eileen Perez as a guest. Oh. And um, Eileen Perez, I asked her what has been your favorite role uh, or the favorite production you've ever been in, and uh, she said Great Scott was her her favorite experience. Um, and uh, was that at Houston? Uh, or no, was that it was in Dallas. Dallas, okay. And she's uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I forget the the name of her character, but it was like an opera singer character, right? Yeah, her her character is Tatiana Baxt, and she okay. is from Eastern Europe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's doing Tatiana at the Met yeah. soon too. So yes, perfect. I know. I'm going to see it. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I think one of the things that she really enjoyed, obviously, was the um ensemble feeling of that show because I think in a lot of things that she sings she's like the desperate heroine that doesn't have a lot of friends you know but she said that just being in that show was such a a joy because of the ensemble cast Uh, but also because she got to be funny and uh, nobody ever like casts her in funny things (laughs) she's always just Damon or something like that you know she had a showstopper number at the top of act two called the starry spangled banner we played that yes (laughs) where her character gets to sing the national anthem at the super bowl (laughs) she had so much fun but i'll never forget the first when we were in rehearsals because it's a real showpiece i mean it Mm -hmm. is 
it does every vocal thing that she can do, right? It explores mm -hmm. everything. And she was amazing in it. But the first rehearsal, when she sang it and she had her backup singers, and she was absolutely incredible. And the rehearsal room just exploded into applause. And she came over to me and she gave me this hug and she was trembling and she was sweating like you can't imagine. And she said, oh my God, that was so scary. <laughs> and you know, we forget that how scary this is for these performers because they make it seem so easy and effortless, which is their job. But you know, they it's a lot of work what they do, but Eileen was fearless and she's so much fun. And uh, I look forward to working with her again and again in the future. Well, last question for you, um, because I know that you've also throughout this time been doing like teaching mm -hmm. and mentoring and whatnot. Is there either a performer or a composer who you've got your eye on and you cannot wait to see what they're going to do? Oh my gosh, so many composers, because I've mm -hmm. even been mentoring some of the younger ones. Um, it's it's really hard to even single out. <laughs> Just one. Um, Name them all. We've got time. <laughs> performers, uh, I have to tell you, there is a young male soprano, not countertenor, soprano named Kimon Mura. Yep. He's, he's been a guest on our show. We love him. <laughs> I know. That voice. Yeah. That voice. I mean, I'm actually going to write something for him, but I cannot oh. wait to hear what, what he does because I've, never heard a voice like that. And He's I've a star. Yeah. A long time, but there is no other sound like that. I've never heard a singer like that. So I'm very excited to see uh, and hear what he is going to do. But, you know, I, I work with so many am amazingly gifted young singers and they keep showing up in droves and I keep wondering, what are they going to do? <laughs> um, but you know, that, that drive to perfect it and inhabit it and go on the stage and share that vibration, that loving, joyful vibration with an audience. I mean, it's like a drug. And um, when you have that, when you have that in your DNA, it's really hard to put that fire out. It just keeps burning and burning. Um, so there are lots of exciting composers and, and singers. I think we're in a really golden age of opera right now, with, especially in this country with new works constantly being created all of a sudden. It's, it's what the business of opera was in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. People didn't want to hear old operas. They wanted to hear what was new. They wanted to hear what Donizetti was writing or Verdi or Mozart or, you know, and now they want to hear this whole fabulous array of composers from all different walks of life and backgrounds and histories. And it's just a really exciting time. I'm thrilled to be on the planet. <laughs> um, my boss uh, at the radio station where I work is fond of saying, that um, you know, a lot of composers have been disenfranchised until recently, mm -hmm. and the ones who are coming through now are able to use um, tonality and able to use um, you know recognizable forms to tell their stories because what's the original content is their story, whereas you know the uh, the grandfathered in line of composers they are the ones that are looking for new sounds because they feel like they have to innovate, but really the innovation is in who's telling the story. Absolutely, you're 100% right. It's in the authentic voice of that composer and what they have to say with that voice. Um, that's why I, I tell young composers all the time, avoid fads, 
you know, try things, absolutely, especially when you're young and you're in school, try everything and see what resonates it true as true, but always go back to what is authentically your voice. That's why the end of my email is the Oscar Wilde quote, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. <laughs> Jake Heggie, thank you for being our guest uh, for the second time on, on Opera Box Core. You're very welcome. And this time I have a voice. <laughs> <laughs> That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show. On Stitcher and Spotify, you can click follow, or if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. You'll get all the upcoming episodes. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is me. For your guests... Kyle Kettleson, and Jake Heggie, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you recover in the burn ward of your local hospital. We're back next week with more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more drama across the pond from George Cedarquist. It's going to be a blast. Join us.